Hello, my friends, and welcome to a very special edition of the Wesley Memorial Podcast, our Four Pastors Discuss series. Today, we're speaking with the Reverend Dr. Carolyn Moore. Reverend Moore is the senior pastor of Mosaic United Methodist Church in Evans, Georgia, and she's also the now chair of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. You're going to hear about Carolyn's passions for ministry, her calling, and also her vision for what the new Methodism could look like in the future. We're going to be separating this episode into two episodes as we discuss so many wonderful things during our time with her. We know this episode is going to be a blessing to you, so thank you for listening and subscribing to our podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another episode from our Wesley Memorial podcast. We're so glad to have you here if you're listening or you're watching. Um, Today, our special guest is Dr. Carolyn Moore from Mosaic uh, Church in Evans, Georgia. Before we get to know her a little bit better, let's introduce ourselves so our listeners that maybe don't know us can hear. My name is Clark Chilton. I'm the Associate Pastor of Contemporary Worship and Evangelism. Jeff Patterson, the uh, senior pastor at Wesley Memorial Church. Melissa Lau, one of the associate pastors, uh, pastor of uh, congregational care and of mission. Uh, And I'm Ken Lyon. I work in the area of vitality and generosity. So welcome, everybody. Today, as I said, our guest is Carolyn Moore. She's an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. She was born and raised in Augusta, Georgia. Carolyn Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. I pulled this off of a website somewhere. Um, And graduated from the University of Georgia, go go Bulldogs, the BA of Religion in 1985, and Asbury Theological Seminary, a Master of Divinity, and she received her Doctor of Ministry in 2018. And in June of 2003, she was appointed home again to the Augusta area in Evans, Georgia, where she and her family were given the joy of birthing Mosaic United Methodist Church a church that focuses on reaching people in the margins. In more than 10 years of weekly worship, Mosaic has seen more than 130 baptisms and hundreds of professions of faith. Uh, She has a wonderful website called artofholiness.com, which I highly recommend you check out in her blog and her podcast, which is part of the New Room Network, also called Art of Holiness. She's the author of the book, Supernatural, a regular speaker at New Room, and the vice chair on the WCA Council. So Carolyn, we welcome you. Thank you again for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you, it's a privilege to be with you guys today. Really a privilege. Mm-hmm. Carolyn, we are thrilled to have you uh, joining us at Wesley Memorial for a chat today. Uh, we're very honored by your presence. Um, I'm sure many of us here in the Zoom room have followed your ministry for quite a while and are very appreciative of what the Spirit's doing uh, through you uh, for the sake of the connection and uh, for the sake of all the people that you're reaching. And um, all, all five of us here in this Zoom room, we are uh, connected with a passion to see uh, awakening yeah. uh, among the people called Methodists, but beyond that uh, here in the United States. So I, I do have some questions for you. Um, now that I've been watching you for uh, an extended period of time, uh, love to know some more about you and I think our, our listeners would love to know some more about you. Tell us a little bit about Mosaic Church. That's one of my favorite topics. Uh, 
So when I uh, was in seminary at Asbury uh, in 1995 to 98, I, I remember there was a day when I, I just, the question came to me is the church that we have, the church that we have, you know, the, the, you attend and I attend, is that the church Jesus meant when he left it to us at his ascension? Do we really have the church Jesus meant? So I ended up kind of calling around the country, just calling all over the country. This is back before internet days and or when that was just happening. So you just made phone calls. And, and I was asking people, where have you seen the church at work? And I discovered that um, in, even in some of the larger, um, more notable congregations that were uh, definitely notable in my, you know, in the 90s, like congregations like Willow Creek and Saddleback and even North Point, they could trace their, um, their model back to a little church in Washington, D.C. called the Church of the Savior. The church of the Savior's been around since the 1950s. Uh, it was founded by a man named Gordon Cosby at the end of, the, of World War II. And um, his heart was to see two things happen, to see every person connected with a mission, um, uh, actively engaging their gifts and call, and also to see every person in a discipleship group. So he was doing small groups and missional community before any of that was cool. While I was in seminary, having had those conversations and discovering the Church of the Savior, I went to visit them, and, um, and my husband and I, at the same time, separately, but at the same time, definitely experienced a call um, to, to, to explore the development of something like the Church of the Savior inside the United Methodist Church. We felt like we left that visit, we, saw, we thought, you know, the Church of the Savior doesn't need two more members, but the United Methodist Church needs a Church of the Savior. So when I was, uh, my first appointment as an associate, I had some experience with planting a congregation. We planted a second campus outside the walls of our church. And, and so I got to experience what that was like. And then I just asked if I could be sent to plant a church. Now I've been planted in a suburban area. So it's not exactly, it does not exactly have the flavor or the audience of the Church of the Savior. But we've worked really hard for 17 years at being a missional community, um, at, at, at connecting every person with their gifts and call and expecting them to serve in some way. And pretty much everybody at Mosaic can say, this is where I serve. Um, and, and, and also trying to connect people with a discipleship group. And that's, in the suburbs, is a really difficult thing to do. So um, I can say that that we have had that intention and we have had that, that um, vision, um, but we still do it so imperfectly. We are still working out systems, you know, and, and every year, you know, creating a system that for us is brand new, trying to figure out how to, or tweaking something, um, just trying to figure out how to do it better, to get every person in a, in a group where they can be discipled and, and connecting every person with their gifts and call. Um, but doing it with a, with a missional mindset, not, a, not, it's not about me and my own personal growth, but really about connecting me with the larger purposes of God in my community. So missional community has become more of a thing, especially in the last two or three, four years, but it's been something that's been on my heart from, from my seminary days. It's, it, I definitely have sensed that it's a call. Um, 
Which means that, that Mosaic's local missions especially are pretty well developed. We actually spun off a separate nonprofit. We call it the Mosaic Center. Um, and it houses our local ministries. We have GED tutoring. We uh, have a ministry called Women of Worth, which um, connects women who are ready to move forward with their lives together with mentors who have uh, some level of, uh, you know, of, of business acumen or success in their own personal professional lives. Um, we have a program called Exceptional Circles that connects families who deal with disability in the home together with supportive services. And that includes um, a, in, in, in our church, a five day a week um, uh, set of services for children on the autism spectrum. We have children in here five days a week, all day long. And uh, we connect with their families and the children receive applied behavioral therapy. Um, that's all professionally done. It's not volunteer run, it's professionally done. Um, we have a ministry called the Mosaic Center at Maxwell House. Maxwell House serves low and no income adults with disabilities in, down, in downtown Augusta. Usually it's complicating disabilities, like they'll have um, chronic kidney failure, but they also are dealing with um, a, a personality disorder or, or depression or anxiety. And um, so we have a, we have a full, uh, not three quarter time social worker place. She, she's on, she's on the staff of the Mosaic Center, but she's placed inside that building uh, to create Christian community. She prays with people all day, every day, <laughs> uh, while she's also providing uh, social, you know, the more professional services of a social worker, but she's, she genuinely considers herself the, the minister in that building. Um, we have a thing called the pantry, uh, and it's a, the way we use our pantry is we feel like food is an opportunity to get in somebody's life. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we take food to uh, the Maxwell House downtown, but we also take food to um, an apartment complex for veterans uh, with disabilities. Um, and then we do some other specialized things with our, uh, with our food pantry. Uh, but our food pantry is really a wonderful example of discipleship and, um, and mission working together. People who work in the pantry, um, quite a few of the people who work in the pantry are people, who, uh, adults, young adults with disabilities who are just looking for a way to serve. And <clears throat> we use that as a way to disciple them and uh, build friendship. Um, so those are, those are the larger services that we offer through the Mosaic Center. But Mosaic Center, of course, is housed inside uh, Mosaic Church. And um, we uh, just are just very intentional about bringing um, discipleship and mission together for the sake of seeing um, kingdom works in our community. Fascinating as you're talking about as I, as I think about some of the connections uh, that we have uh, at Wesley Memorial Church with some of what you're doing. We actually have a young man out of our church, great young man, Jimmy Marsh, who is serving um, with Church of the Savior up in um, inner city, Washington, D.C. So we have some knowledge of what goes on there and, and some knowledge of that wonderful ministry. And our congregation about 15 plus years ago um, founded a center here in High Point, 
uh, we call it the Macedonia Center, uh, that does a lot of the same sort of things that, that you do, uh, your congregation does there with the Mosaic Center. So even though our congregation is, um, was founded in 1856 and yours is much newer, there's some, there's some close similarities. Well, thank you for that. So I'm talking to pros. That's awesome. And people who get the, that kind of vision, which I think is so important. So way to go. Really well done. Uh, but uh, it's, it's great just to feel some of those connections. And I know in a little bit we're going to get particularly in, into uh, the areas of discipleship, prayer, fasting, those sort of things. But another question I have for you that's just been lurking behind my mind when I, when I see somebody uh, in ministry like you is uh, other than the, just the Christian faith generally and the power of the Holy Spirit and your spiritual disciplines and fasting, um, who are some of the influences in your life? Uh, uh, I always like throwing resources at, at, at people. Who are some of the influences, whether authors or preachers or pastors or maybe people you've known personally, who's, who's helped you on your spiritual journey uh, to get you to this place of leadership? Um, that's a great question. Um, a, a lot of mine has been caught and it's been uh, come really uh, almost inside my ministry because uh, I grew up in a very traditional United Methodist congregation, really wonderful people. I have such uh, appreciation and respect for how, you know, that they were the ones who, um, they were there when I received my call to ministry. Mm. Um, so I have a lot of love for that church. Uh, but they were a pretty typical and traditional church. We talked about Jesus sometimes. We never talked about the Holy Spirit. Um, certainly not in a, in a way that emphasized the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in, in, in everybody's personal life. So um, it wasn't until I got to seminary that I really came to understand the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in, in my life. And um, I've been filled before I got to seminary, but I didn't know it. I didn't even know what to call it. Walk <laughs> <laughs> to Emmaus. Um, and my walk to Emmaus experience, for those of you who don't know what the walk to Emmaus is, it's a, it's a spiritual retreat that's kind of floated through Wesleyan circles for decades now. Um, uh, for many people, that experience uh, represents a great healing or a great spiritual awakening. For me, my, my healing had happened. I was wrestling with the call. I didn't know what to do with it because, um, I, you know, I'd been told women ought not be preachers. And so I was wrestling with all of that. Um, but I went from, you know, really kind of operating from a, a decently spiritually awakened place it was late at night on not part of the session that they were doing, just some people sitting around playing, playing guitar. This was, this was like 1992, maybe, uh, 91. So contemporary Christian music was really just coming into its own. It was Jack Hayford, you know, Majesty. It was three song, I mean, three words, 15 minutes. That's, kind of, that's where it all <laughs> And um and so it wasn't really my thing, but I was listening to these people, just, just listening and, and she singing, playing the guitar. And I just heard the unmistakable voice, just lift your hands, lift your hands. And I was back in this corner of the room, nowhere near the center of all of this. And I lifted my hands and I experienced physically the filling of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that's what happened. 
happened. I didn't know that's what, what to call it. But it started at the bottom of my feet and it filled me all the way, all the way to the tips of my fingers that were still in the air. It was the most glorious feeling. And I would say that was the first time I truly worshiped God. I'd been in church most of my life, but it was the first time I, I felt like I worshiped God. And I experienced uh, what I would call really ecstasy in worship. It was quiet. It was quiet. It was still in the corner of the room. I wasn't dancing around or screaming or anything. I just experienced extreme pleasure of worship, true worship. So I went home from that and said, okay, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And that's how I ended up in seminary. Seminary then gave me uh, uh, language, gave me vocabulary for my experiences. And um, so, and, and it's it truly, I have always connected my, the more spiritual um, and, and abstract experience of the Holy Spirit, oh, excuse me, abstract experience of the Holy Spirit with the word of God. I'm, I just love the word of God. I love it. I love to read it. I love to preach it. I love to be in it. I soak in it. I just love the word of God. So I've not been, um, you know, a person who's more aesthetic and just looking for the experience and the feeling. For me, it's all been anchored in the word of God. So uh, seminary professors like Joe Donjol and uh, Ben Witherington have poured into me um, because they have such a great approach to exegeting, studying, um, really pulling out the good, the meat, the, the alive, the real from the word of God. But I've also been poured, in, poured into by seminary professors like Steve Siemens, um, who's, um, and I'm giving you these names, uh, people who are listening, you can Google them and find their books, just reams and reams of books by these guys um, that are deep and real and solid, just good stuff. Um, so Steve Siemens was another one. And Reg Johnson also just gave such, um, he's the one who really helped me kind of connect um, the work of spiritual formation to the spirit-led life. And those were early names that really helped me on my journey. In more recent years, I've found great help from um, just, just great modeling from people like Bill Johnson with Bethel and, um, and then lesser known names, but no less influential in the, um, certainly the American body of Christ, like Cheryl Johns Bridges, Cheryl Bridges Johns, excuse me, Cheryl Bridges Johns, she's a Pentecostal professor in Tennessee, uh, Alec Rollins, has a marvelously Wesleyan charismatic Pentecostal church in, in uh, Seattle, Washington. It's actually Edmonds, Washington, where his church is. Uh, but he's written a book that just beautifully captures the Wesleyan spirit um, of, of spirit, the, the Wesleyan spirit-led life. Let's put it that way. And he talks a lot about spiritual disciplines in there in his book. Um, and um, um, other people uh, really closer to home for me, Tom Atkins, who is a, um, an evangelist in North Georgia. He was among the early uh, just voices in my personal life who, who helped me to understand the power and presence of the Spirit. You really trust it, like not as a feeling, but as a promise. If you ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life, Luke tells us 
He is more, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? When you ask, trust it. Don't trust the feeling. Trust mm -hmm. the word, which tells us um, that he, he's, he's with us. Um, Rick Bonfin, also uh, an evangelist in the North Georgia Conference, but who does a tremendous amount of work in South America, he, he taught me a lot about um, really the, the prophetic presence of God in, in my life, how to, how to trust the prophetic word, how to go after healing um, in my life. And, and um, so he's, he was an early, and, and I'll tell you, Rick Bonham also taught me a lot about spiritual warfare. Um, Angel Davis is uh, just a marvelous woman of God. I met her in Athens, Georgia, and she and I together went on a journey toward understanding healing prayer. She was practicing up to that point as a traditional psychotherapist and eventually trans, kind of transitioned her whole practice into uh, healing prayer. And um, she, just, she just has taught me so much about how to bring those two, you know, how to bring the, the mind and the spirit together um, and really understand the, the origins of your wounds um, and the lies that the enemy has spoken into our lives, how to, how to bring healing into that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm kind of rambling, but all of those people, you can find them online. Angel has a, a, a podcast. Um, I'm not going to be able to come up with the name of it right this second, but Angel has a podcast. You can look her up online. Um, Alec Rollins has written a lot about revival, and um, it has a, his book is called The, the Presence. Um, um, Steve Siemens has written lots and lots and lots on healing and the spiritual life. Um, so go, go after some of the stuff. And, and Cheryl Johns Bridges, or sorry, I keep saying it backwards, Cheryl Bridges Johns, um, she has written, and she's, you can find a lot of her stuff online, but um, a lot of these people that I'm mentioning are also on my podcast. We've, my son-in-law and I have uh, started a podcast called The Art of Holiness, and um, uh, we just are trying to interview uh, folks who are doing extraordinary work in the body of Christ, but whose names might not, you know, kind of rise to the surface when you're looking for the more kind of rock star stuff. Um, they're just good, solid uh, practitioners who are, um, who, are, uh, who are leading, in my opinion, in the spirit-filled life and, and in spirit-filled ministry in our, in our kind of in the United States. Those are some powerful names and great Christian mm -hmm. leaders. And uh, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing those. I, 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 mm -hmm. I, I'm sure some of our listeners will go after some of those uh, resources and let those people begin to pour into their lives. Well, yeah. this is a great segue into um, really our important to topic, uh, spiritual formation and prayer and fasting, seeking God's presence, power of the spirit, uh, helping to be an instrument of awakening in the body of Christ. So um, what you got for us, Clark? Well, as we finished our last conversation with David Watson, as you said, the blending of mind and the spirit, and uh, that was kind of where we ended our conversation with David. And and uh, and so it felt like a great segue. I feel like maybe God brought you to my mind, Carolyn, to have this conversation about how, especially lay people that could be listening or watching this, 
how can they be um, learn more about praying in the spirit, uh, prayer in, in the year that's coming up, uh, really in the Methodist church, but also in our world, um, but just to really be inspiring more of our lay people to be praying and fasting and, and interceding. And so I, I was looking at one of your blogs and you talk about lamenting and the power of lament. And I thought it was very powerful what you had to say. Uh, here's a quote from that. We want to open our hearts like the flask of oil that woman broke over and open over the feet of Jesus and pour out what is inside so we and God can both see what is really there. Only then are we able to move toward repentance, to activism, toward solutions, toward hope. The church on the other side of this locust infested season has a chance to look like revival, but it must begin with lament. And um, I think a lot of times when lay people may think about prayer, we don't really want to go toward lament or the idea that, that weeping may precede the healing. Um, but let's just, let's just talk about that a little bit about that role and the, in the in, in prayer and in uh, the, the role of lament, really? It's such a great question. Um, I, I want to just start because you mentioned fasting two or three times now, and um, I need you to stop saying that word. <laughs> I hate fasting. And I think that's something people need to hear out loud from people who do it. Um, it you're, not, if you're not getting the fasting thing. It's not like you're the only person. Fasting is hard. I mean, that's the real deep end of the spiritual life. And I, I hate it. Every time God calls me to a season of fasting, it's just like, please, Jesus, take something else, <laughs> anything, just don't make me fast. And then fasting happens for whatever season I'm in. And I will come to the end of it and I'll say, fasting is so awesome. And I love it. I'm always going to do it from here out. I'm always going to, oh, wait, is that chocolate cake? <laughs> That's kind of how fasting works for me. And nobody ever says that. What we always hear is just how, oh, I fasted and I got, you know, everything turned out perfect. Actually, it's not how it works. Um, I have some amazing stories of how God has moved in my personal life and in the life of this church through fasting. I also, I also have a lot more hours racked up of just being hungry and mad. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to offer that as encouragement. Um, these disciplines are, um, they're, they're called discipline for a reason. They're things that you have to, you have to set some things aside to get to the good. And if you get in the shallow end, sort of like, you know, when you're, Jumping into a pool that's 68 degrees on a 100 degree day, it's cold. But the good news is, you know, when you get used to the water, it feels really good to be in, <laughs> in cool water on a hot day. But it's okay to, to, to ease in. Um, so, you know, fasting a meal or, 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 or praying into maybe just, just just praying into your excuses before you ever get there. Let me just write down all my excuses and all the reasons why I don't think I ought to have to do this. Just start there. Um, whatever will help you to get honest with yourself. That's what lament and 
repentance are meant to be. We tend to um, think of lament and repentance as being either guilt producing or shame producing. And especially with repentance, guilt producing isn't always a bad thing. If you did something wrong, you need to feel bad about it. You know, <laughs> my little girl was little. We had a thinking chair. That was her that was her punishment. When you did something wrong, you needed to go sit down and think about it. And um, my husband didn't like the thinking chair concept because he said we were giving a bad name to the word thinking, um, that people shouldn't have to attach uh, bad feelings to thinking. But, but actually, that's what repentance is. It's in l l lament and repentance are really meant to, to, to give us room to stop and think about what's in our life that doesn't need to be there, about what's in our life that we can't control, that hurts and is there. And it just helps us to tease out what's, what do I really actually need to feel guilty about and then say I'm sorry for, because there's, that's, we're, we're Wesleyans, we believe in grace, right? So, um, so repentance really is about getting me in front of grace in an honest way. Lament, actually steps us back one from repentance and says, um, it's crying out to God, it's being real with him about our pain, not to get him to fix it, but simply to acknowledge that something hurts. There's nothing wrong with just saying before God, this hurts. Someone has called it a loud religious ouch. I like that, you know, <laughs> thinking about it. And lament always will usher us toward hope, but just not immediately. It gives space for us to feel the pain first, to let our pain surface honestly and without unholy expectation. I, th I think that's why, and, and lament is a relatively new thought for me. I, I, I've, I've written a lot about repentance. I get repentance. I understand repentance as being part of the process toward hope. But I hadn't really thought about lament until this year. Lo Alamon, um, the poet and uh, kind of a prophetic poet, but he's been part of New Room a good bit. He's, he's the guy who actually really got me thinking about lament. He's, he said, it's the African slave singing, singing in the field. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, you know? Um, and, and Lo, by the way, has just released a, a, a book of poetic lament through Seedbed. So you need to look that up. Um, but Joel 1, it, it, the book of Joel is really where I, 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 I kind of dug in after that conversation with Lowe and really thought about what lament means. And uh, Joel 1.19 says, to you, Lord, I call. Um, and, and that's kind of it. It's just calling to God, calling out to God, being honest about our pain and, and letting really turning our pain for all that is but ought not be and all that ought to be but isn't, just turning that pain toward God who actually has power to interpret it for us and do something about it. So rather than externalizing my pain and trying to blame everybody in my life for everything that's wrong, I actually just turn that pain toward God. So we need to learn that language to let our pain surface in its most holy form and direct it to the one being who can rightly interpret it for us. And what will happen out of lament 
when I'm just honest, God, this hurts. When I'm honest about that, then God will interpret it for me. And he's going to tell me this thing right here, this thing is probably actually something you need to repent of. And this thing right here, you just need to, to let me comfort you. You know, this is the blessed of those who mourn for they will be comforted. Some things just need to be mourned in the presence of God. Pandemics, I can't control the pandemic. I can't control the fact that we can't get people back to church yet. I can't control the fact that, you know, two of my staff people are sitting at home this week because they've been exposed. There's not a thing I can do about it. I can just lament it before God. I don't need to blame anybody for that. I just lament it. I can't, there are so many things in this world right now. I cannot, I'm not responsible for, can't do anything for about, but I am so much better postured when I am using the biblical language of lament rather than the very unbiblical language of opinionating, um, especially opinionating, um, you know, on social media. Nobody's helped by that. No, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody's ever hit their knees in repentance based on a bumper sticker or what someone saw on Facebook, you know. <laughs> That's uh, exactly right. So, I mean, how, it's really a question of how, how, how do I change my mind? Uh, That's it. it. It's not, you know, no one's, you can't change anybody else's mind. It's only your, your own. Um, right. So what your words about lament are, are spot, are spot on and about leveraging our lives. And for anyone listening to know that God is big enough to receive what you have to say and, and give, and he's probably the best place to go lament or yeah. your repentance or. And let me say this. Um, I just want to tell you this. Um, some time ago I was with a church um, and, and I was talking to them about lament and I was sharing this concept with them. And I, at the end of the service, I invited them into a time of lament and, and I said, there will be time for repentance later. There will be time to get saved or saved again later. You know, we're Wesleyans. We reserve the right to get saved every week if we need to. But there'll be time for that later. All I want you to do tonight is just cry out, just lament. And you can do it in your chair right where you are. You can find a place to kneel or you can come to the front if you want to. Whatever works for you. I just, this is a safe place. Well, this is not my church, but I just, I'd met this couple beforehand who were pretty heavily um, invested in their lives in a, in a more Pentecostal tradition and obviously very deeply faithful people. This, they, these, what I want to say, these were not newbies by any stretch. But when I gave this invitation at the end of the service, they came to the front and they knelt down and and the room was mostly quiet. I mean, this is, you know, a lot of introverts quietly lamenting inside themselves, I guess. And this, the, the woman in this couple, she began to cry out loud. I had never heard it like that before. She was lamenting inside her community for everything she could not fix. She just, she just said, God, it hurts. It hurts. My husband's dementia hurts. 
my children's, I can't even remember what their situation was. It hurts. And she was, I mean, she was, it was not a scream, but it was loud. And the room was just, just dead quiet, except for this one woman who was just crying out. I'm not their pastor, right? So I'm thinking somebody, uh, who's going to go up there? Nobody moved. It was beautiful. Nobody moved. And I, I, at some point, I kind of sensed that and the Holy Spirit just saying to me, it's not your problem to fix. Let her go. And, and, and her pastor was close enough. He could have moved. He didn't. And we just let her have her moment. And afterwards, she told me, and remember I said, she wasn't, she's not, a, she's not this is a mature, a person who is mature in her faith. She said, I had never thought of talking to God like that before. Mm. I never thought I had permission. And other people told me afterwards, she really needed that. She really needed that. And that it happened in community was particularly powerful to all of us. One thing to do that when you're at home by yourself, it's another thing to trust your community enough to cry out together. Um, uh, I've learned something just this year because of Zoom. Um, and I, I lead several prayer calls every week. And one of the prayer calls has uh, often been led by a, a, a man who's part of our Wesleyan Covenant Association. Um, he's Korean and he's taught me the art of Tangsan Kido. Tangsan Kido is when everybody prays at once together out loud and, and, um, Lament can work that way. Just tell everybody on your Zoom call or tell everybody in the room that you're in. Just, I want you to pray out loud, but simply cry out to God for all that is not, but should be all that is, but should not be. And um, so I, I just want to say that just, just because you think you have a pretty decent prayer life doesn't necessarily mean that you've really explored this whole area of being emotive before God and that bringing your emotions into the process in a holy way, um, trusting that on the other side of the lament is either um, repentance or, um, or trust. Um, but in, in both of those cases, on the other side of both of those, repentance and just trust for all that I cannot fix is hope. It always leads to hope. On the other side of this locust-infested season, God is. He is. He will not leave us or forsake us. 